Show. And a quick reminder to our call-in guests, you are being audio recorded, and all audio recordings become property of this show. By participating, you give us explicit permission to use your voice for profit and worldwide distribution on the Internet. I received a letter from a listener. It was quite disturbing. And it reads, Dear Sean, Since 1983, I've been dealing with parents who are pretty codependent on one another, and they have just celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. I lost respect for them the first time when my brother came home with the news that he had impregnated his college sweetheart, and my parents didn't do anything to lift a finger to help him or her, and they ended up giving up the baby for adoption versus abortion, and a myriad of other stories that I don't want to have to tell here on your show, but the latest was my wife saying to me, what, another call at 11 at night? What is it now? Your dad's fallen down again? And they get a call here in Seattle to travel 22 miles all the way east to pick up my dad off the floor, half hour to 45 minute drive away, because my mom and my sister were too lazy to call 911. Now my brother who lives 14 houses away down the street, he's had enough. He got smart and decided, I'm not going to do anything to rescue them, I'm going to rescue myself. Out of a sense of guilt and out of a sense of duty, I told my wife, well, I might as well go back there and move in with them and try and help them out because I can't afford to drive every night out to where they're at and try and work at the same time. So I left, I moved out, moved into a room above the garage, and for the next nine months, I allowed myself to be used and abused and held hostage by my mother is extremely toxic, all the while trying to hold on to her purse strings rather than hire caregivers from my father. Her goal was to try and use me as family to work for free. Never mind my needs, never mind the needs of others around who might ask that they pay the bill. The goal was to hold on to their two properties, one in Seattle and one out in the east, worth $1.2 million each. The goal to prevent Medicaid from showing up and taking either house to help pay off all the medical debts they were incurring. And their caregivers telling them, you really need to hire someone other than your son to come in here and take care of you. He can't do it by himself. It's overwhelming. You've got him doing the shopping. You've got him doing the laundry, the cooking, changing dad's colostomy bag post-cancer, which pops frequently because nobody's properly trained to put it on but him. If a caregiver's hired, it's going to cost you three to 7000 a month. What are you willing to sacrifice to keep your husband alive? Well, in the meantime, my mother 
decided she was going to hire a guy to come out and pressure wash the roof and do the painting shun to preserve the one house she had out in the mountains. Her $1.2 million house. Hers, not his and hers. My dad with holes in his shoes. A true hero, a true knight. Willing to fall on the sword for her at any request. A hostage to chivalry. A hostage to Stockholm Syndrome, where you fall in love with your captors. An obvious abuse victim who had lost his spine and his set it long ago to my mother, including the spare. And she decided that the property was worth preserving versus my dad. Better to spend the money on the house than on hiring caregivers to come in for dad because, after all, we could hire the son to work for free out of a sense of guilt and duty. Preserve the purse. What's more important, people or the purse? Well, the son saw through it. Even the caregiver said, you know what? Your dad's an abuse victim. We're going to have to report it to the state. Your mother really doesn't care about him or his care, his palliative care. Here's about her purse and her properties. She's got a plan. When he dies, hopefully soon, she and your sister are going to move out. You're going to sell the place they have in the mountains and move into Seattle. We know you're not here for the money. We know you're here because you love your dad. But you know something, you got to take care of yourself. You need to cut the umbilical cord. You need to stop operating out of a sense of guilt. So when mom decided to push her way into the bedroom while he was changing dad and his philosophy bag, which would often explode all over the room, to rescue dad's dignity, he would go to Home Depot and buy a shop back to try and vacuum up all the poop off the Alibaba carpets that she had that were worth 14000 apiece. Never mind selling the Mercedes. Why would you do something like that? To hire a caregiver at 1300 to 7000 a month. Never mind hiring your family. Why would you do that when you can use them for free? Pretty soon the son woke up. Anger dwelled in him when he realized he was having to wash all of Dad's laundry each week on a Saturday, get all the feces out of the clothes in a separate washer and dryer that he had accrued from a GoFundMe campaign to try and keep his laundry separate from Mom's and then the daughter's, who was a kidney recipient, because they couldn't be around germs. Couldn't wear rubber gloves, couldn't wear face masks. They just couldn't be around germs. With the old man stuffed into a little bedroom, that used to belong to the sister. And him moved out of he and his wife's bedroom where she could keep an eye on him in case he fell down. To live in a little hovel with his sewage-smelling bathroom right next door. The wife not wanting to enter the sewage and the smell. Not wanting to live by her husband in case he had to get help and she had to call 911. After being left face down on a carpet for up to three hours with almost a heat stroke. A broken back and two broken ribs after another fall and a six-week trip to a rehab facility. It didn't matter. The sooner dad was dead, the better. She and her daughter could move to Seattle, sell the other place in the woods. The son got smart. Here in the letter, he said he decided he was going to tell her the olive baba carpet's going to go in the first dumpster that arrives. I'm not responsible for your cleanup. You're going to have to pay me. I don't work for free. Not the words you tell to the queen. Not the words you tell to your hostage takers and your abusers. With poor dad being at the final end of abuse. Him willing to die on his sword like a good knight to protect the queen, his wife, 
married for 60 years. His deep faith running him is more afraid to go to hell than to get a divorce. His son telling him, I would never have married my mother. How could you have put up with this abuse for so long? Where was your spine? Where were your... Oh, and by the way, did she get a spare? Somewhere in between those two things, you might have found courage. And he said to the old man, I could get you dressed, but one more trip into the bedroom with her screaming at us, no more. You're on your own. Sean, what do I do? I don't know how to deal with this woman. She's toxic. I don't know how to deal with this codependent husband of hers who will join her side each time that he knows that she may reject him and reject his love because her purse is more important than him. The houses are more important than he is. The Mercedes is more important than he is. Preserving the paint job on the houses and the pressure washing and the roof are more important than he is. Paying the taxes, suing the neighbors in Seattle who might block the height restriction over the Puget Sound to her main property might be more important than he is. Why? I'm not going to jail for these people, Sean. I'm not going to lose my temper in her last threat of, well, you're raising your voice, you're getting domestically violent, I'm going to have to call the police. That was enough. We were done. I needed to take care of myself. Good advice from the caregivers who were hired, who said, hey, look, your dad had a stroke, your mom won't spend the money, take care of yourself. So I walked away. And the guilt and the frustration of it all have been weighing on me heavily. What do I do? Why has my dad allowed himself to be a victim of such abuse? Why has my dad surrendered his manhood to someone who really doesn't care about him? doesn't care whether he lives or he dies, whether he gets a bath, whether his post-cancerous colostomy bag is changed twice a week, whether he even goes grocery shopping, whether he has holes in his shoes. What price dignity, Sean? I'd like to hear from your listeners. Folks, when I read this letter, I was floored. I didn't know what to say. Honestly, I first thought was toxic. How many more relationships are there like this out there? How many more parents and disabled people are suffering under similar conditions? Why is it someone alerting authorities? Why is this abuse allowed to happen? Why do kids feel that turning in their parents for such abuse will lead them to not getting anything out of the estate. What's more important? People are stuff. Call me here on the Sean Tesher Show and let me know. 425-247-8827. Our email is trashner at hotmail.com. That's T-R-A-S-H-N-E-R at hotmail.com. Leave your comments. If you're swearing in them, I'll edit it out, I promise. Here we go. We're going to open this vault door here and see what kind of archives we can dig out from the Sean Teshkin Show Ear Candy Vault. See if this door will open. Oh, maybe it needs a little oil on the hinges. One other thing. Oh, yeah, always have a good pair of boots on standby. It's the other rule of life. Good pair of leather boots. For when, no, when there's the fan, right? But when there's zombie apocalypse, you're ready to go to war. Let's go ahead and take a call from our next guest. Well, John, thank you for calling the Sean Tester Show. Uh, I look forward to hearing about your stories of toxic parents. Was I was hoping maybe you could tell me some stories about what it's like to grow up a, a stepson and whether or not the situation was toxic there, if you have a story okay. to hear. Well, at first I 
first off, I want to say that, you know, I, I have a really good relationship with my stepfather, and I've forgiven him for any things that happened when I was a kid. I, um, you know, I want to just say that first off, but, but it had, wasn't always that way. And I remember one time I, uh, was, uh, he had bought some ice cream, put it in the freezer, and that was off limits, you know, and this was during the summer, and, you know, well, my brother, my younger brother got into it. Oh. And my stepdad thought I did. And I was, you know, and we were downstairs in the hallway there, and, and he just was certain I did it because he got home and somebody ate some of his ice cream, and I just was not going to admit to something I did not do. I just wasn't going to do it. Sure. And then... Um, so when I was, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time, and he was a pretty big guy, six foot two, and he, and he just backhanded me across the face pretty hard. And, um, and I was just so enraged at the injustice. I just, I flew into him and pushed him back. There was these Venetian blinds behind him, and he kind of knocked the blinds off back. And, you know, he came back at me and just slammed my head up against the wall. Remember that? Knocked me Lulu. But, uh, you know, that that was... For an adult, that's, I'm sorry, that's, you know, it's not, not the way to handle things. And the whole thing was, I was innocent to start with, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. not that I, it probably, my, my part in that was the fact that he, he didn't believe me because I didn't always tell the truth. So uh-huh. he didn't know when I was when I wasn't, you know. But you know, there's a lot, a lot of kids grow up like that until they, you know, either learn to be honest or go online and become sociopaths. Well, fortunately, I, with God's help, I chose to be honest. But, um, you know, and, and that, and again, this is a, you find a lot of this stuff goes on when they're not biological parents. It's a stepfather, it's a stepmother, right? Yeah. And you see a lot of that stuff go on in those types of situations because they don't generally have it. I'm not saying it can't happen, but they don't generally have that bond that you do with a biological child. Now, again, I want to reiterate the fact that I'm on a really good base, have a very good relationship with my stepfather now, and, and I don't hold any bitterness or animosity against him at all. In fact, you know, we've had a really good relationship for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Well, when I refer to toxic parents, what I'm talking about is parents who are emotional abusers rather than just physical abusers. I think trying to heal emotionally is harder than healing from the bruises of abuse. Um, but abuse is abuse is abuse. Yeah, you admitted that you lied at that point, and he overreacted, and I'm surprised CPS wasn't called and someone went off to jail. Um, well, back in those days, that, you know, that, that kind of stuff kind of got... Uh, so yeah, if that was to happen nowadays, oh, yeah, that would be a serious a serious deal. But back then, I mean, you're talking, this is like 1974, uh, 75, right in there, something like that. And then, of course, there's sexual abuse, too. I think uh, that's highly underreported with males, but certainly uh, in the forefront with females as well. You know, some of the, the stuff that goes on, uh, the touching, the uh, grooming that goes on, uh, within families or step families too, uh, it's pretty yeah, sick. Yeah. I know my dad used to tell me when he taught school, sometimes the kids would only come to school just to get a warm meal, or a place to sleep, or something. Uh, you know, keep dad from touching them, or stepdad from touching them. Yeah, the really girls. sick, or boys. Yeah. yeah, there's abuse going on. A lot of these kids oh, yeah. are in foster care, or were homeless, as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, and I, I think what it comes down to is... Um, My way or the highway? Yeah, well, well, having, you know, having kids is a big responsibility. And if you're in, you have a child, whether it's a stepchild or your biological child, it's a big responsibility. And, and uh, you know, God puts parents in our lives for our good, but the parents don't always have our best interests in heart. And some of them are... I mean, we live in a fallen, selfish world. John, do you, did you ever think when you were growing up, man, I wish I'd had a different set of parents. God, why did you give me this set? Why couldn't I have that set over there? No, I, that's not what I thought when my parents were together. My parents divorced when I was 11. And up till that point, I was, I was perfectly fine with them. What I wanted after my parents got divorced, my mom left my dad and 
we were in Snohomish. My mom left my dad and moved us out to this apartments in Everett. And that's like, you know, I wanted to go back. I wanted my family to be back in Pat. That's what I wanted. Yeah. But it never Yeah. I, I'd say that's pretty normal. And, you know, yeah. the, the idea that parents can say to their kids, well, if you don't like my rules, get out. You know, pack your stuff. Find another place to live. I remember my friend Franklin telling me that at 16, his dad, or at 18, his dad put his stuff out on the porch and said, well, you're on your own. And he ended up couch surfing for a few weeks and then finally came back and his dad says, all right, make a room out in the garage. And he, he said that lasted about three months and he finally got a job and went out and has been on his own ever since. And sometimes that's what it takes to shove someone out of the nest. But is that toxic or not? Well, I don't think it's necessarily toxic as long as, uh, um, you know, the, the finger isn't there with it. I think that's where, you know, the anger and the belittling. That's or betrayal. Betrayal is a betrayal. Betrayal, yeah. yeah, I know. yeah no, we, we received a letter, John, we received a letter on this show in which uh, someone detailed that the parents were getting sick and that the mother who had control of the purse strings was not hiring any caregivers for the old man who had had a stroke and couldn't take care of himself. So yeah. there's a lot of anger there and the kids stepped away because they had to take care of themselves and uh, God knows what happened. Well, thank you for uh, detailing your stories and I promise we'll have some more interesting topics down the road and you can participate again. All right. Thanks, John. All right, John. Thank you for, for calling the Sean Tester Show. Well, John, you didn't select a processing method for properly leaving the dad shack, so we're going to send you out zombie style. Here we go. The zombie apocalypse. <laughs> With that in mind, let's go ahead and take a call. Hi, Sean. Hi, Barry. Well, uh, Barry, thank you for calling the Sean Tester Show today. Uh, as you know, the subject of today's show is toxic parents, and we uh, like to have people share their experiences of toxicity in parents, and was hoping that you could add to the show. Well, I appreciate you asking me to do that. I think I have a few insights based on my personal experience and also based upon what I've seen in my own family and what I have uh, seen in my practice. I'm an attorney. Part of my practice is uh, family law, but more importantly lately is my practice as a, an attorney dealing with estate planning and probates of assets, often assets that pass from parents to children. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can understand how that can so, become a toxic situation when those parents pass away and families fight over stuff. Anyway. And I, I don't think it is has any real value for me to talk about examples, uh, but I might have a couple of personal ones that I am aware of. But more generally, I, I think I'll talk in the abstract about how I have become increasingly aware that um, parents, when they are, I would say, uh, not being uh, the type of parents that we were meant to be, um, often bring their own childhood trauma into at least part of their parenting techniques with their own children. Rarely is it all of their trauma, but I think the more of a parent's trauma that's laid on to a child, the more toxic that uh, parent-child relationship can be and the greater the child can uh, suffer. Hmm. That's insightful. What I'm talking about is, I, what I'm talking about is parents Whose, uh, whose old parents were alcoholics. That's fairly common. Or the, the children of, of, of abusive parents. That is unfortunately common too. 
parents whose own parents were controllers. Mm. Um, and then in my personal experience, experience, um, the parents who as children learned the uh, techniques of pass, passive aggressive conduct. Mm. And I guess I could talk about that particular problem, uh, in that, um, it can be very confusing to a child, and I suppose anger-making, well, confusion can beget anger. When a parent can be passive-aggressive, that is to say, uh, acting in some ways as, as sort of a victim or someone who is the parent appearing to be a passive, someone who has no connection really to the situation, but an underlying message that can become uh, aggressive and frightening to a child, a situation perhaps when um, a a, a parent uh, possibly loses one of their babies after an older child is born, and of course a parent who experiences that experiences a great deal of pain and separation and um, feelings of failure and I think that it would be sort of human nature out of I suppose sadness and feelings of guilt for that parent to harbor some feelings that this child who survived maybe should have been unworthy of surviving maybe shouldn't deserve the love that the deceased baby could have had and that can be laid on to a young child, maybe a child in their pre, pre, uh, speaking times, where the child feels that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that children, when they're born, can recognize love, can recognize caring, can yearn for eye, the eyes of a mother or a father, the smiles and the approval of a mother or father and the sincere love of a mother and father and that can be taken away and the child I think recognizes it and can recognize the the fact that the parent deals with loss and grief and mm, what the love that's taken away from a uh, from a from a New child, a deceased child, uh, by by way of um, saying, I under it, it happened. It it causes me grief. But then sending a subtle message in sort of a an, a, a an aggressive way. Well, I can't give you love now. Maybe I'll give a message. I don't mean to give a message, but maybe you didn't deserve to survive or. Maybe if I risk loving you, little baby, I'll lose you too. And I think the young really are perceptive of, to that. Um, um, the other way that I think parents can be toxic is, um, and this goes back to the parents' own, own child, uh, early childhood, when the parents had a history of say alcoholism or abuse or or parents who controlled them and um, it's been my experience oftentimes that those parents at times seem unable not to show the face of their own history to the new souls that they are responsible for giving birth and and early early love to um there's a uh, there, there's an author of a, a sweet uh, she's a Swiss psychiatrist by the name of Alice Miller who wrote a wonderful book called The Drama of the Gifted Child and I, I, I didn't understand what she meant by gifted child and for me to understand it better I would call the book if if I were to title it the drama of the wholesome child and here I'm, I'm talking about a child who when born has no bias 
no knowledge of anything other than the love that was in the womb, the love of God, the love of life that allows that child to survive. So they're gifted. They are free of any of the influence of human failings. And while that child listens to what happens and watches what happens, even without the ability to speak, that child begins to recognize the drama that their parents exhibit and the drama being a play where the parent plays a role either as a victim or an abuser or someone who cares little about others and that child then begins to learn that that drama that play that can be written in their minds or in their parents minds can be a way to deal with life forever and at least for a long part of their lives. And that drama becomes sort of a lifelong expression when the child who was raised by an abusive parent deals with future relationships as important as parent-child, such as marriage. Barry? Or, more importantly, go ahead. Oh, I, you're striking a lot of chords here with me. The first, My first thought is PTSD. Uh, and the difficulty of forming relationships, uh, the fear of forming relationships. Um, being a teacher, I know when kids are volunteered rather than volunteering to speak in front of groups, if the experience is terrifying to them, they'll never ever volunteer to speak in front of a crowd again, or they'll pick jobs that are safe and sub-basement sub somewhere where they don't have to interact with people because they, their growth was suddenly limited. They, put a, they arrested their own growth with people because they didn't want to step out of their bubble, out of their safe zone, and take a risk. And the risk is loving or being accepted by others. And that fear factor there is so strong in, in the kind of decisions we make as children as for our careers, uh, who we'll pick to marry uh, or not marry. Uh, <laughs> everything you're mentioning uh, is so spot on. Uh, the only thing that I'm thinking about, which was mentioned in a letter written to the show, was that, gosh, I wish I could have picked a set, another set of parents. You know, if God lined up a set of parents like a lineup at a police station, well, I really wanted those parents, not these. If I had only known, God, why did you give me these parents? They've been horrible to me. I wish I had had those parents. <laughs> so that was another thing pointed out, and I don't know if you can talk about that or not, too, but I apologize for interrupting. You've made some excellent points. Well, I, I, I think I take a different take on that. I, I like to go back to the very develop, development years in the first two or three or four years of a child's life where I think the parent's role is critical because I, I don't think at that point in a newborn's life and a young person's life they can even formulate the concept of I'd like different parents. They have what they get. They learn entirely from the mother and the father, sometimes from siblings, but most importantly that primary relationship. And if the parents um, uh, lay some fundamental foundation of how love happens or how it is contorted, that child, I don't think, really fears. I would think that a child who has perceptions that happen, bad perceptions of parenting, that happen at age 6 through 12, perhaps, uh, they can develop fear of the abusive parent. I think that when this toxic parenting happens, and it's toxic in that it's not exactly love, in fact, it can be sort of love, but sort of the opposite of love also at the same time, those those little ones uh, will develop a belief that that's how it has to happen. That's how I understand it from my parents, and I'm not afraid of it, but rather that's how I'll live my life. And you know, Barry, and Barry those, it, reminds me, yes. it reminds me so much of the divorce I went through and my daughter you know, um, I can remember moving back to Black Diamond and staying with my folks because I didn't have a place to live. 
And my daughter wanted me to make her a tent in the backyard, and I pitched a tent for her, and she said, Dad, you're feeling bad? And I said, yeah, I think she was four or five. And she says, come into my house, sit here. You're, we're going to roast marshmallows. You sit on these sticks here. This is a chair. And I realized she had become so compassionate toward my situation, I didn't even realize it. She knew I had lost my job that day, yet she was going to take care of me. She took the parenting role on, and I was the kid in her little house. And the other time I felt really guilty as a parent was at age two when my wife said, I want a divorce, and you're going to have to pick up your stuff. And I had borrowed my parents' truck and driven it all the way from Black Diamond to White Center. And I was loading up the truck with all my stuff, and my little girl came out. She was two years old at the time. And she says, Daddy, please don't leave. And I said, Honey, I've got to. Your mom doesn't want me to stay here. And she started to cry. And then she said, Wait here. And she ran inside the house, and she came out with a little red wagon that I'd given her at Christmas. It was a little radio flyer wagon. And she shoved the handle of the wagon into my hands and said, Take it. And I said, Honey, I can't. The truck's packed. I, I can't. There's no more room. And she looked at me and says, Take it. And then I realized at that moment, if I didn't take the wagon, she thought I wasn't coming back for her. And I've often thought about how important it is for at least one parent in a divorce situation to spend every weekend with those kids growing up so that they have at least one normal parent or are paid attention to, so that they don't fear forming relationships that are long-lasting and meaningful. Well, Sean, that's a beautiful story, and I sort of agree with you, and the image that you're giving of a is a, is a wagon or a vehicle. And what I, I, I hear you saying also, or at least how I could interpret that message the child was giving, is, Daddy, here's a vehicle for you to come back to me. This is a transport of you back to me, the love that you gave me, I'd like to always be able to transport, so keep this. Barry, that was, that was the God. lowest moment in my life. You talk about being broken as a person. Yeah. That was the lowest moment of my life. I've never forgotten it. I wrote a poem about it called The Red Wagon. And the other one I wrote about the tent incident called Marshmallows with Monica. Yeah. Well, I would remember that that child was giving a hopeful sign yeah. Not a heartbreaking sign. Right. She was expressing her hope and her desire, and that child learned from her parents that there is hope, that this parent will return. I'll give this parent some kind of symbol of return. There's another uh, image that Father Chuck Pollock of the St. Barbara's Church used to use with a wagon, and he would talk about how people pack their wagons around, and the wagon sometimes, now this is not as beautiful as your own daughter's symbol of wagon, but sometimes people carry wagons that go back generations, and they can involve the pain or the burdens that they were laid on, and this is a bad wagon to pack, the wagon that they carry all the way from uh, uh, a parent who said, well, here's a wagon you can pack, and if you'll pack this wagon, this ugly one, it'll help all of us and all of our ancestors pack a wagon. I had a personal experience with a parent, and this is, I know this is certain because it was spoken to me by a grandparent who told me the story of his own mother who said to him on her deathbed, uh, I want you to always remember that family is important. Family never fails. And so you always keep this family together, whatever you do. Well, that grandparent of mine made that his mission in life, for good or bad. Mm -hmm. And he became insistent that he would carry that burden through to his own children and brothers and sisters and brothers-in-law. And that he would then also give that message to his daughter. And it was my experience that that daughter held that message. And at her deathbed, 
I was asked to go and listen, and she asked me to do the same thing. And it was a very hard thing to do for me to say, I can't agree. I can't pick up that wagon because I'm not certain that wagon is is something that is uh, either Christian or valuable to me and my family. And that helped me resist the urge in my midlife to try to tell my own children, you need to have a burden of caring for everybody in your family, maybe even to the exclusion of, of, uh, of Christ or God or others who are important and should be important. Um, and I don't always succeed because I still have that idea from a parent that you really fail if you don't take care of all your family, and that would be a burden you need to pass on. So that's, a, I think, a toxic example of, of not wholesome and not really a Christian thinking of what our lives mean and what love means. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my experience with toxic parents. Um, and sometimes it's a bit pathetic. I once knew a set of parents who were in their 80s, and they came to make out a will, and they told me, well, I, we want to do a, a trust for our son to make sure that what we have is going to do good. And I said, oh, my goodness, you're in your 80s. Now, how old is your son? Well, he's 65. <laughs> and I said, well, is he disabled? Is he disabled? Is, is Has he got some kind of addiction or other thing that will cause him to um, uh, waste his inheritance? And they said, no, he's fine. He works a full-time job in Minnesota. and But, you know, he's never uh, been able to uh, keep his house payments current. And he sometimes calls us up and needs money for uh, a car or a down payment for this or that or help on credit card bills. <laughs> and I said, and, uh, does your son's wife not work? Or is she disabled? Oh, no, they both work. Bunch of enablers. And I said, <laughs> I said, you are, you're in your 80s, and you've been helping your, when was the last time you helped your son with his house payment? Well, last month he needed $500 for his house payment. And I, I, I said, well, have you, traveled or enjoyed your retirement? Well, a little bit, but we always have to worry about our son. And here's a pair of sons who, a parents who, not exactly toxic to their, well, they are toxic to their child because they're allowing the child never to grow up, mm-hmm. never to have to carry, care for himself. And you wonder what, I never heard what happened to the child. I suspect that child of the older parents really didn't pass that on, they just used it up. So the parents gave an, an, an inability to care for the, themselves to the children that lasted forever, which I, would, I suspect might have robbed their own grandchildren from any possibility that, that these 65-year-old son would leave anything or pass anything on. Not the money's important, but there was a child who was whose development was stifled and left basically in a preteen I need help situation. And I would say for the best of intentions, <laughs> that set of parents was toxic. Well I'll tell you something in teaching that's called learned helplessness. And uh, you know, listening to you as an attorney, my first thought is, my God, how many hats are you wearing? You're a counselor, uh, you're an attorney, you're a dad, uh, probably a grandfather you're wearing all these different hats, social worker, you're trying to rescue people from themselves. And that's got to be really tough. I know as a teacher in the classroom, I see it. I see a lot of brokenness, a lot of broken kids. Uh, I see a lot of happy kids, too. And the most successful are the ones from two-parent families. And if those those grandparents, um, I'm surprised they didn't say to you, well, Barry, we're just going to, we're going to go ahead and give it to all our kids now so that they won't fight over it after we're gone. I'm sure you've heard that, too. Well, sometimes they do that, but I ask 
who was in the Great Depression. In fact, he was from Black Diamond. He was a coal miner. So was his father. And he passed on to her, always hold on to the land. No matter what, don't give up the land. And the thing that I've noticed with her is she expects to have a U-Haul behind the hearse. She's going to take it all with her. And I've always told my folks, I don't want your stuff. I want you to be happy. I want you to retire you're not responsible for us, enjoy life. And they won't give themselves permission to do that, which to me is toxic for them. Well, that's the lack of, of love or the inability to get out of that uh, toxic parent who gave them a burden of always pack these little red wagons. And your comment about not having... Uh, uh, a house following a hearse is exactly the story that Father Chuck uh, talked about when he talked about things that people have to have that they think give them life. And he said, I've done thousands of funerals and I've preached this message in my homilies virtually my entire, uh, my entire career as a priest. And he said, I, I have never had a situation where the hearse was followed by a whole bunch of wagons, no matter what was in them. The wagons of guilt, the wagons of things, the wagons of houses. And it is tragic when you hear someone, as you've discussed, carrying a burden of the parent who said, you got to have houses. That's really important. Give up everything else, your care, your comfort, or the ability to take care of your spouse or even yourself for the sake of having these structures because really the most important structure is the temple of your own body as is Christian your own body should be carrying Christ and that would be the most important thing and of course he's not a burden he's not a little red wagon he's already there and he's with you and he'll be with you uh even when you pass from this earth. So that's, his burden is light, but the burdens sometimes we learn from our parents are so heavy that they influence ourselves, our spouses, our children, and it's tragic. So I would say that's, that's not only toxic to themselves and the love they forfeit, but it's tragic also. It's a human tragedy. You know, when I talk to my own folks about living for people and not stuff, it's like talking to somebody with the deer caught in the headlights gaze. Uh, they just don't get it. And I get so frustrated to a point where I just, I've got to walk away. They don't get it. They'll take care of uh, everybody else but themselves. Uh, they'll fall on their swords for each other. They're very dysfunctional in that respect. You know, they've been married 60 years. Uh and I understand that idea of obey your parents and, you know, try and help out and do what you can for family. But being part of family doesn't mean you have to work for free either. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that either. You know, mom will say, well, can you paint the house for me? And I'll say, yeah, it's going to cost you a thousand bucks. And she'll say, that's too much. 
Okay, and then I'll walk away, and three weeks later I'll find out that she's hired some guy named Davey, and he charged her three grand, and she wrote him a check, no problem. It was the fact that she couldn't take advantage of me because I was family, and she saved, or spent $50 to save 500 or 500 to save 50 whatever works as far as making sense there. You know well, what I mean? You know, when you talked about, I do know what you mean, but when you spoke about the, your parents looking at you with expressions like a deer in the headlight look, I am reminded, or I'll go back to the story of the parents who talked about their house that they were carrying, and they wanted to pass it on to their children at all costs. And when I asked them, well, why don't you just do that and just, just forget life? Because that's all this has been for you, really. You're willing to just end your life and give this thing away as if that's the most important thing. I didn't say this, but I'm thinking maybe the most important thing would be true love and teaching your children to love, love, uh, love life and love themselves and love you, not for what you have, but just to love. So it reminds me of the biblical story, and I often think of biblical stories. The story of the young man who came to Christ and said, what, what, what do I need to do in order to uh, have eternal life? And Jesus told him, well, love God and love yourself and, and obey the commandments. And the young man said, well, I've done all those things. So, but tell me, is there anything else that I could do? And Jesus answered him, well, yes take up all your possessions and give them to the poor. Well, the young man was a rich kid, I guess, and the story goes he walked away very sad. And it kind of sounds like your parents, when you told them a real clear truth, that they were sad. And that elderly couple who walked away from my office walked away confused and sad. And that is... Um, it's toxic to themselves, but you think of the love, the true love that they perhaps didn't give to their children, but just made a promise to their children that you will get things from us. The love is not as important as the things. And so you're talking about that with your parents. There's a lot of ways to express this, but I think it's the same thing. It's a failure of love when parents are toxic and you know none of us are perfect that's not what we're called to be but to recognize when we're being uh we're not hitting the target quite correctly we're failing in love again father chuck uh at saint barbara's parish taught us that the word sin isn't from a, a uh, lexography of something that is that is necessarily evil, it's from a term of, of archery that is the middle of the the middle of a target in archery is called the sin. And when you fail to hit that middle of the target, well you've uh, you've missed you've missed. You have not succeeded to be right in the center. And so rather than a guilt aspect of of what some people think of Catholicism or Christianity, that sin is this evil, wrong thing, it, it can start by just, we're missing the target. The target is kind of simple, but it's a narrow place, it's a hard place to hit, and when we miss it, well, we're not quite right. We'll just try and walking a straight talking. line when you're drunk. You know, you must have as an attorney, as an attorney, it must be tough for you to have to maintain a professional distance and not want to put your hands around their throats and just squeeze. Because I can tell you, the letter we received on this show, the the person said, I, I wish I'd had a different set of parents. I wish I could have chosen a different set of parents. And man, I, I thought to myself, wow, that's profound. Okay, well, you mentioned something a little while ago about what I do in all the capacities of my profession, and mm -hmm. I really think if we have a profession, uh, I like to really consider a profession 
whether you're in the healing arts or whether you're in the social arts, it, I, I, I would call it a mission. And, you know, I, I love my mission. Uh, and I can't say that it's a burden at all. It's a privilege. It is a privilege to be in a ministry for people. And I love what I do. And no, I never do want to, I never get angry at my, at my clients. I sometimes try to grieve with them silently. I try to educate them a little bit in a gently, gentle way. I suppose I was a little bit aggressive. Well, it was really aggressive when I expressed to the older people that I didn't know why they wanted to live. And I don't mean to have people walk away sad, but sometimes the truth is difficult to hear. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult even for me in my own life to hear it. Uh, but I try. All I do is every week I come in and try <laughs> over and over again. And I will continue. I hope I continue that, uh, God willing, and having a good mind that can express itself clearly. I hope I do that uh, until the end of my career, which I hope is many years from now. It's been 41. I'd like to make it 51 or 61. But as we go grow older and tireder, and I know your dad is going more feeble, having more needs, and it, I do see him, and to see him not do what he enjoyed, which is which is reading scripture or being able to walk and get around. I feel sorry for him. I, I know he misses that. And uh, you do have, you have parents who have done their best and they failed. And I think forgiveness as the part of children is important because we can break out. We, we have the ability to break out of this anger and disappointment with parents by forgiving them but if we can recognize the difficult things they were handed and have not been able to drop those hot potatoes that they packed perhaps all their life long and maybe even have passed them on to you I don't think they intended it Barry, I, I, were caught. at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about toxicity. And in my definition, toxicity means danger, poison, uh, people that break other people, people that are bullies. And when I was a kid growing up, I remember being bullied on the way home from school. And it was very traumatic to see my own blood run through my fingers and to have to fight back, literally, uh, so I could make it home. And that affected me deeply. Um, it was combat, literally, as a kid, second grade being picked on by eighth graders and having knives pulled on us and my twin brother and I running and, you know, we were dressed up with bright orange backpacks and corduroy coats and uh, patrol boots from Sears. We were, we were perfect targets. You know, we had clothes on that we're supposed to grow into in the next two years. Our parents tried their very best, but I don't think sometimes they were good listeners in understanding uh, how traumatic being broken uh, was for us. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned substance abuse and how people try and medicate their pain with uh, alcohol or drugs. Uh, that can be an unbroken chain, too. And I remember talking to a sociologist once about that, about mapping both sides of your family down your mom's side and your dad's side and, and list all the people that have been, say, alcoholics and the lack of female nurturing toward males or males toward females. It's huge, and kids do see that. And then they grow up thinking, well, that's the normal way to act until they get some help. The neat thing about you, Barry, you don't fit the mold of an attorney that, you know, is out to steal people's money or break them. Uh, you seem like a really passionate, good human being. I'm proud to know you, and I'm proud that you've come on this show because I think it's going to help a lot of people. They'll be able to download download this podcast and listen to it 24-7. So my hat comes off to you. <laughs> well, it's a hat. pleasure talking to you, Sean. I, I, it's a pleasure to talk to you, and I encourage you to keep up the good work. It's a mission you obviously are, uh, you yourself are passionate about, and I think if people listen, they'll, they'll hear that you have hope, that you do believe that love can solve uh, a 
lot of the problems that we face. And as a teacher, you're trying to teach that. And this podcast you do is is a an expression and an outreach from what you do best, Sean. So good luck and and give my best to all your listeners. Thank you for being on the Sean Tester Show, Barry, and I look forward to hearing from you again. I, that I do with guests at the Dad Shack is you have to be properly processed before you can leave here. Now, that means a mafia hit or a toilet flush, or go out with the zombies chasing you. Which would you like to pick? I, I don't quite know what you mean there. Oh, when you leave it, when you leave the interview? Yeah, you yeah. you got to be processed. That's one of the rules here at the Dad Shack. So you can go out being flushed down the toilet, that means with a sound effect, or you can go out zombie yeah. style with the zombies chasing you, and, or you can go out mafia style, you know, two to the back of the head and, Get him out of here. <laughs> That's your choice. Oh, yeah, hit me, in, hit me in the back of the head. Oh, you want to go out mafia style? Yes. Okay, here we go. You've always been family to me. I just want to let you know how much I love you. <laughs>